Travis has been sick most of this week, so please pray for him, for a full recovery for him, because we are uh, headed into a really busy conference week here at church, and we, we need him functioning at, at high Travis capacity. Um, but he had wanted to use this morning as an opportunity to preach a message that would to start to prepare us all and get us ready for this important and exciting conference that we have coming up. But instead of that, you get to hear a sermon on something else that you're probably eager to hear, how you should spend your money. <laughs> right? Yeah. If you're a visitor, I just want to make sure you know that we don't have some massive building project coming up. We're not taking some sort of major loss from our conference or anything like that. It's just that when I'm up here preaching, I'm going through the book of Philippians. And by the providence of God, this just happens to be the next section of the book of Philippians that I am on. So, so there's no nefarious plans. The offering's already been taken up. You can uh, just sit back down and, and uh, listen in. Uh, in fact, I would actually just like to preface this whole sermon by expressing to you all how nice it is to be an elder at a church full of generous Christians who seem to love to give, who love to meet needs, who understand their finances to be just one more thing that God has given them in order to, to steward their lives well towards gospel partnerships and the good of the church. I am thankful for our church. So thankful as I think of this subject. For the majority of this church, this is going to be more of a uh, Excel still more type of sermon and maybe just kind of refocusing on some things that, that maybe you already know or practice well. Perhaps maybe just a readjustment in thinking in some areas. That's kind of what it was for me. Um, I do think that there is a sense in which our passage today flows nicely out of the passage that Travis preached out of last week from Luke 17, 11 through 19, where, where we see the ten lepers healed and only one returns. Now, if you remember, Travis uh, showed us that this indicated that even though all of the leopards were cleansed of leprosy, only one of them was truly saved, proved himself to be truly saved. If you remember, Travis pointed out the major difference in the mindsets of the lepers. Nine of them demonstrated that when it came to Jesus, they really only wanted from Jesus one thing. They wanted him to heal them so they could go back to enjoying the life that they once lived, the life that they wanted, living a life like everyone else did. But the one who returned demonstrated that he truly understood that once you have come to understand really, truly, just who Jesus Christ is, then that old life has, does not have the same meaning anymore. That life is not going to be the one that you truly care about anymore. You now live for something else completely. Once you understand that, that the one who has the power to heal your physical maladies is the very God that also has the power to take care of your greatest need. Once you realize that so much greater than any earthly prize that you could ever receive, so much greater than having him change your physical circumstances in some way that will allow you to be happier in this life, so much greater than that, this Savior can take away your sins and the punishment of your sins forever. He is able to reconcile you to God. Through him, you are saved from eternity in hell and now reconciled to God. Once you get this, that you now have eternal life, not merely a, a pleasant, trouble-free, temporal life that's going to end anyway. Once you understand that, then you will live every part of your life in this truth out of this truth. And that includes a new understanding of your time and of your possessions. What we come to understand from our passage this morning is really just the natural understanding that we should expect Christians to have when it comes to giving of their finances. If they really believe that the gospel is true, then they're going to want to comport their lives to what the Bible says it should look like. 
We really believe that the message of the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the single most important message in existence, that it is indeed the very message that must be heard and believed for someone to be saved. And if we really believe that, that after death, mankind lives on for all of eternity in either heaven or hell, then of course we should expect that the followers of Jesus Christ will gladly invest any and all temporal goods necessary for the possibility of making an eternal investment. Spending earthly wealth to store up, like we just read, store up treasures in heaven where moth and rust can't destroy, where thieves cannot break in and steal. So originally, I was wanting to, I was planning on preaching through 4.14-19, through 19, Philippians 4.14-19, and I had several points but as I was writing the sermon, I realized that the first point was really bloating out. And as I realized that, to try and fill all the points into the sermon and still have time for communion just wouldn't work. So what today is, is gonna, it's actually kind of more of an introduction to this passage. And I'll finish it when I get back up here next time. But, but I decided to just focus on the implications around a single concept that I think is key that we see in this passage, displayed in this passage. We're just going to look at verses 14 through 16. We're going to give the entire sermon the title that was originally just going to be my first point. So the sermon is titled, The Necessity of Gospel Partnership in Christian Giving. The Necessity of Gospel Partnership in Christian Giving. And that is what we're going to build out of this morning. So next time I'm up here, I'll cover what might be my other points would have, were going to be, but probably in a different outline. But the reason that I really wanted to expand on this theme is because I really do think that this is a principle in Christian giving that is so misunderstood. It's underemphasized. It's practiced poorly by many within Christianity today, even by many well-meaning, generous Christians who love to give. So I think it is good for us to take some time thinking about this together. And plus, it means that I've got more than one sermon in Philippians left, and I was kind of sad when I realized that, so that's good too. Let's read that passage together now. So starting in verse 10 of chapter 4, just to get kind of the fuller context, and then reading all the way through verse 19, Paul says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly in that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you have had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. So, if you remember, last time I was up here a little over a month ago, I talked about the uniqueness of this section of Scripture. Many so-called scholars even believe that these verses in 10 through 19 constitute a separate letter to the Philippians that just kind of got tucked in to this letter over time so they would be together. But like I mentioned last time, there's absolutely no manuscript evidence for that. But Paul is responding to the monetary gift that was sent to him by the Philippians in this section of the letter. And this is something that they apparently have done for him before we find out. He makes it clear to them more than once in this passage that it is not that he needed the gift. He wasn't pushing them to support him. He wasn't sending support letters with pictures of hungry kids on them to try and get money from them. But he also 
isn't trying to be ungrateful. He just wants them to know that all of the things that he has said about having all of his needs met in Christ, that they really are true. And he doesn't technically need their money. But even though he might not technically need it, he does affirm that it was good for them to give it. And not necessarily for his sake, but for theirs. Paul is reaffirming the truth that for us as Christians, Christians, giving really is good for us. Not not in the way that all the health and wealth gospel hucksters out there try to use it, telling people that by planting, you know, this little plant, this little financial seed, it's the seed of faith, and then God is going to reward you with more money or a new car or a new house or some other temporal blessing. Those are Coincidentally, the exact type of teachers who Justin Peter is going to be warning us about this coming weekend, those who will happily accept someone's last bit of money that could have been used to pay bills and then to falsely promise that if it was given in faith, God's going to reward that gift with health or a better home or something. But this is not what Paul is talking about. This isn't the good that Paul is referring to. But he definitely is affirming the goodness of their giving, the righteousness of it, the, the benefit of wise, discerning, generous Christian giving. And that is what we see Paul saying right here in the beginning of the verse. Look again in verse 14. He says, Even though I have learned the secret of being content in all circumstances, so that's verse 13, yet it was kind of you to share in my trouble. Paul says, I don't need it, yet it was good for you to give. That was the kind thing for you to do. There are quite a few things that we need to understand in these verses, but it is extremely important, and that's why I want to spend so much time on it today, for us to understand this one critical principle that Paul is revealing in his words here. In fact, if you have not understood what we're going to talk about today, this is possibly the most important thing you need to understand when it comes to the principle of giving. It's not a you should give, but a what is giving type of thing. If you don't understand yet what Paul kind of just assumes more than teaches here about the partnering relationship between the giver and the one receiving the gift, then this is going to be revolutionary for you in your thinking when it comes to what you should and should not do in the practice of giving. Paul understands that by financially giving to Uh, to him and to his work that the Philippians have made themselves his partners. His partners. So this whole sermon is going to focus on the importance of that concept. What does that mean when it comes to Christian giving? What does it mean that giving makes us partners? And how then should that understanding affect our thinking and our practice of giving? We're going to examine how this concept better informs our mindset when we give and then prepares us to hear other instructions on giving. And then we're going to look at what it is in the Apostle Paul that makes him the perfect partner for this type of relationship. And we're going to see that in in three points. Point one, the certain reality of partnership. Point two, the proper resume for partnership. And point three, the right result of true gospel Partnership. So the first point, the certain reality of partnership. By this, I mean that partnership is a certain reality that takes place when we give our money to a church or to a ministry or to a cause, whether we understand it to be that or not. So look at the words for share in verse 14. Look at verse 14 again. He says, yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And then this other word in verse 15, and you Philippians yourselves Know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you alone. Those are related terms that come out of the the Greek word koinonia. Koinonia, that that you've probably heard before. That word that speaks to that special fellowship, that unity, that loving fellowship that Christians are to have for each other. These words are, are, are that. They are related to those terms. They're related to other terms that Paul has used throughout this book also. And so this entire sermon today really is an exposition of those two words, the words share and the words partnership. 
and their significance and building out of that. Of course, there is a sense in which they were partners. They kind of understood that already with him, just based on the fact that they are a true church working toward the same goals as, as Paul is working towards. They're both in different parts of the world right now. They're both doing the work of evangelism, discipleship. They're both growing the body of Christ. So, so there's a partnership in that sense. And, and even more so, since they have a personal relationship with Paul, there's a partnership there. In fact, that word used for share in verse 14 is the same word that he speaks of them as, uh, when he speaks of them as partakers in chapter 1, verse 7. But here Paul is using the term specifically by speaking of the way that the Philippians, by giving to him in his current ministry, have become his partners in a special way, even even in the trial that he is currently dealing with. There is a special sense in which their giving has connected them to his current ministry. In other words, Paul is using these words here to suggest that what is going on here is not merely just a transfer of resources. He doesn't see this as the Philippians just giving him money. This isn't the same as someone giving you a gift card or money on your birthday or Christmas. It's not like them saying, here is something that was ours and now is yours. That understanding of, you know, that, that here you go, now whatever you do with it, that's your business. That type of thinking is foreign to Paul's understanding of what happens when Christians give their money to the work of the ministry. So if that is how you think of your giving, is merely giving to the church or giving to someone's ministry, it's not that that's necessarily a totally wrong picture, it's just that that is an incomplete picture. It's not a full picture of what's going on. There is a very real sense in which Paul understands that the success, the results, and even the day-to-day working out of his ministry is inseparably tied to the Philippian church through their gift. As Paul goes around sharing the gospel and planting churches, the Philippians, because of their kindness and insistence on sending financial gifts to Paul, have become a real part of the planting of those churches. And when God uses the gospel proclamation of Paul to save someone, there is a real sense in which God used the Philippians in that conversion also. In verse 16, he mentions the church in Thessalonica, and we'll talk about that more in a bit. But for now, we can understand that even though it was Paul who was physically there in Thessalonica, doing the work of the ministry, discipling and building the church, in the eyes of God and in the eyes of Paul, the Philippians are real partners in the building of that church. They're really a part of it. They're not just contributing to it. They're a part of it. There's a true sense in which the church in Thessalonica would not exist in whatever form it did were it not for the ministry of Paul and his partners in the gospel, the Philippians. And we know that's true of the church in Corinth also. Paul says in in 2 Corinthians 8, he talks about, uh, to the shame of the Corinthians, that the Macedonian churches, that's where Philippi is, that they were the ones that were supporting him while he was ministering to them. So the Philippians have a real part in Paul's ministry. They are connected, they are partnered in building churches in Thessalonica and in Corinth. So by giving of our financial resources, we need to understand that there is a real sense that in whatever endeavor we are contributing to, we have become true partners, true partners. It really is as if you are a real part of what is going on. It really is a part of, uh, you you are a part of the the real ministry. Not just a contributor, but a part. Not just a donor, but a part of the ministry. Of course, giving isn't the only ministry, though, that you should be involved in. Yes, you are also to steward your time well and be one who is speaking evangelistic words and engaged in discipleship relationships. Uh, we know that just being a giver and never a doer is not being faithful. So I want to—that—that's uh, not being faithful. So I don't want to make you think otherwise. 
But giving is a definite and necessary part of real Christian ministry. It is a real part of the growth of the church. And that means as you give to the work of our church, you are a partner in all that we do. There is a real sense in which you can say and really mean, we are putting on a conference this week. We are... Uh, sending a group of students to camp so they can learn about the gospel and grow in the gospel. We are putting on a VBS to try and reach the families in our communities with the gospel. We have a radio ministry in which we are trying to reach northern Colorado with the truth. Yes, it is Travis who is the actual one speaking, but it is our ministry. He is the voice of it. It is true partnership. It's a key part of God's means for causing the church to grow and flourish is through faith is through the faithfully giving members of the church. And it is only by filling the resources side of the partnership that the expositional ministry side of the partnership is able to work. Is able to to to, to contribute to the church being able to 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 grow deeper in our convictions and to expand out in our witness. So this is a really big deal because having this understanding of true partnership when it comes to where we give our money, knowing that giving makes us partners with the one that we are giving to should increase then our desire to grow in our discernment. Because if it is true that the giving of our finances represents a real partnership with whatever ministry that we are giving to, then that means that we need to be really careful about who we are partnering with. Very important. Because a lot of times, it is so easy for us, even the most kind-hearted, generous people might be especially prone to this temptation, to let our emotions or a misplaced sense of guilt hold sway over who and what we give our money to. Indeed, I would actually argue that this ends up playing a much bigger part in the decisions of many Christians into how we give than maybe we would like to think. A few years ago, while I was outside doing yard work at our home, a little boy came up to me who was trying to raise money so that he could go to some children's summer camp with his church, walking through the neighborhood, trying to collect money. He had a flyer for the camp. He was showing me all the activities that he was going to be doing. He had an official form from his church that he was from. It was a church that I hadn't heard of, and he was, he was a cute kid. He was so excited about going. And I felt bad for him, and I actually had a $20 bill. I don't usually have cash on me, so I decided I'm just going to give him the cash. I'm going to help him out a bit. And he was so thankful, and he put the money in his envelope. He ran off with his big sister who was walking with him, and he was so excited And I felt that I had been able to contribute to making that kid so happy. And I kind of went back to my yard work. You know, that that was good. I'm glad. Glad for that. Feeling good about myself. My obedience, you know, to Christ and the command to give. A few days later, I was in a conversation with someone at the church, at, at our church. And the name of that church that that boy was from, came up in a way that caused me some concern. And when I looked up the church's statement of faith, I discovered that this particular church, among other, many other problems, had a Trinitarian heresy plainly stated in their beliefs. And then I further discovered that the camp that this kid was going to was affiliated with the church, and it believed and taught the same things. And as we, as we hear stories like that, it's maybe kind of a funny-sounding story, kind of an egg-on-your-face kind of thing. But according to what we have come to understand here, this is actually profoundly serious. This is something I had to repent of. Because as, as one has, who understands that I have been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, I have been bought by Him. My, not, my life is not my own. It belongs to Him. One who now lives a life in service to Jesus and to his church. On that day, however many years ago, I made a decision based on emotion. Wanting to feel good and make a kid smile. 
Make kid feel good and, and smile. Those are good things, right? They, they can be. And so normally I would just excuse myself. And I think that this is something that, that a lot of us do in situations like this. We're just, we just naturally do this. We may, or maybe situations where we give some money, but we don't quite know. We don't have an understanding of what exactly we're giving to based on experience and research. We haven't really looked into it. But we make the determining factor in whether or not we do it kind of our heart. We excuse ourselves by saying something like, well, my heart was in the right place. Or, or, or God knows what was in my heart when I gave that person or that organization my money. Essentially believing something along the lines of, well, since I gave it in good faith, I can trust God to use it according to my intention. And we say or, or at least believe something like that. And there is a, you know, there's a little truth maybe to some of it. Maybe we really did have good intentions. But good intentions don't clear us from responsibility. If the giving of my money forms a partnership, then I had better not be making my decisions based on my heart or emotions. Because what I had actually done in that situation was to use some of the money that God has called me to be a steward of And I used it to partner with a heretical church to send a child somewhere he could grow more in his understanding of a false gospel that will never save him. Whatever the intentions of my heart might have been, that is the reality of that situation. So this principle, partnership, should cause us to be extra discerning when it comes to how we spend our money and who we give to. Yes, it is a good and godly impulse to be quick to want to help, to be quick to want to give to a perceived need, but that doesn't mean that we are to be impulsive. We need to be wise, we need to be discerning, and make sure that all of the partnerships that we use our God-given earthly resources to form are true gospel partnerships, that they are really going to do the work of the building and the strengthening of the church that God intends to be the goal of our lives. That means that as a general rule, it would be best for us to follow the Philippians example that we see here and give to people and causes that are proven and known to us. So that brings us to our second point, the proper resume for partnership. Proper resume for partnership. So if we're going to be partners for good or bad when it comes to those whom we give our money and energy to, then the better we know the person or ministry and the work that they are trying to accomplish, the safer we are in making sure that we are connecting ourselves to that type of work, the type of people that we will never be ashamed to stand with as partners. The Philippians have identified such a partner in the Apostle Paul. And even though it is unlikely that they had much to give, they have identified the one in whom they see as doing the type of ministry that they want to be a part of and to send him their gift through Epaphroditus. They they are boldly and confidently and intentionally partnering partnering with Paul in their giving. Look at what he says in in verse 15. He says, No church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. And again in verse 16, he says, Even in Thessalonica, you you sent me help for my needs once and again. So you can hear in those statements the determination of the Philippians to to share in the ministry of the Apostle Paul. Why are they so determined to? The reason that they can be so confident in their investment here is because they know Paul. They know him. He has ministered to them. He has built their church. They know exactly what he is going to do in every place where he goes. They know exactly what his ministry is. They know exactly what it looks like, what it consists of. They can have absolute confidence that all of the money that they give to Paul will be used to do the exact same type of work that they have always seen in Paul, that which they were eyewitnesses to. This is pointing us to one of the biggest problems in all of evangelicalism. It is not so much that Christians aren't giving, 
That's maybe an issue with some, but the Christians are not being discerning in their giving, and they're just using a powerful story or a plea for help or a convincing argument as the final criteria for the decisions that they make. And this isn't just a reference to all of the health and wealth prosperity preachers who are receiving, yes, millions and millions to continue to proclaim a false and damning gospel. That is true. And that's an extremely horrifying reality. But even among good Christians who just really want to follow Christ well, who see their finances as a stewardship and they want to be obedient to God, it is too easy for so many of us to to just kind of trust a good story or for someone to appeal to our emotions or to our God-given sense of morality, to show us a need and then ask us to trust them that they're going to meet it. It is wrong for children to be abused. So when someone shows us pictures and asks for money to help save the children, of course our hearts are stirred within us and we want to help. Because that's wrong. And we hate abortion. So when an organization that claims to be fighting to end abortion shows up and asks for money, again, our hearts are stirred within us at the evil of abortion and wanting it to end. So we want to help. And even in the the ultimate causes of gospel proclamation, when we get that support letter from our cousin's kid who is going on a mission trip to Mexico to share the gospel with some people who need to hear the gospel, the good and righteous part of us that, that wants to see people saved from hell. It's a good desire. We want to see people saved from hell. And we want to see young people faithfully proclaiming the gospel. So we want to give to that. And while those are right impulses and good causes, that doesn't necessarily mean that they are the best or even good situations to become partners in. How well do we know any of those people or organizations in those situations? What percentage of that money goes to help children? Can I trust the character of everyone in the organization that my money is going to? Do they have good character? Are they just going to pass my money off from one person to the next? How can I know that? Do they they merely end with feeding children or do they minister to their souls as well? Are they content to send Kids with full bellies to hell. Are they even doing what they say they're doing? In the end, whose word am I trusting in and have they earned my trust? How are they intending to fight against abortion? Is it a Catholic or Mormon organization that's going to try and bring the mom into their congregations? So, abortion is bad, but is that really The situation you want to partner in, is that a place where you want to be partnered with when they're going to bring people into their false religion? Where does your cousin's kid go to church? What gospel will he be sharing? If someone does trust in Christ while he's in Mexico, do they have a follow-up? Are they working with the church? How will that person be discipled and cared for after that? Or do they just leave them? And boy, we realize, don't we, that there's a sense in which asking these questions and really being discerning could come across as mean and stingy. And we we know that. But the understanding of being partners in the gospel means that we must have the answers to these types of questions before we join in a partnership. And it's not because we don't love kids, and it's not because we don't hate abortion. It is because... We love Christ. We love the gospel more. Being mean and stingy would would mean that we don't give at all. But our calling as Christians is to be generous and discerning. By all means, we are eager to give and to do so generously, but toward the goal of partnership in true gospel ministry. This is how we get to the bottom of the question of whether or not the foundational concern in our giving has more to do with with us feeling good about our generosity or a true concern with leveraging all that we have to be obedient servants of the Lord Jesus Christ and the growth of His church. In the kind providence of God a few weeks ago, 
a young person showed up at our door in our, in our neighborhood from that same church from years ago, wanting to go to the same camp from years ago. And in God's kindness to me, because I'm still growing in this, this was a middle school-aged kid who had far less power to disarm me with a smile and his big eyes. So that was kind of God. And even though we were living in a different house than we were in, this kid shows up in our neighborhood, completely different neighborhood. I should give you reason for pause, by the way. Why are they sending people out everywhere? Because, by the way, when, when I announced that we were taking kids to camp from our church, you know how we got them there? It was our church. There's faithful parents saying, my kid's going to work if he, to go to that. And then the rest of the church responding by saying, we have jobs, we have money, what can we do? How many? I, I had so many offers from our church to send kids to camp that we could have brought so many more kids. You guys were so generous. That is what a faithful church looks like when opportunities like that come up. Anyway, this time when the kid came to my door, I went outside and I was able to explain to him and his mom that I could not support the work of this church or this camp because I love Jesus Christ and you're teaching a heresy. I was then able to try and explain the difference between the true gospel and the false teaching that they were hearing. And this boy and his mom did not leave my house with the same joy and excitement as the other one did. In fact, they seemed a little upset and they probably went away thinking, you know, I was stingy or, or a jerk and, and that bothers you and you want to you tell them, no, that's not it. That's not why. But the truth is that this was much closer to a faithful and loving response to this kind of request. It was much more representative of how an actual gospel-loving Christian should respond in this situation. Whereas the first time I felt good about giving some temporal joy to a little boy, I was ultimately actually contributing to his harm. And this time I was bringing sadness to a boy, but ultimately being kind to him. The necessity of gospel partnership when it comes to giving means that it isn't the presentation of a need or a, or a hard-to-hear story that ultimately moves us to give. It means that we understand that our giving goes to serve an ultimate good. Not merely the good of having something to point to in order to show that I'm obedient to the command to be a generous giver. That's not the good. Obedience and discernment must work together in this command. We all know that one of the greatest problems going on in many churches today is that people understand that God commands us to worship, but they falsely believe that they get to decide what obedience to that command looks like. As if God hasn't clearly laid out what He demands our worship should look like. As if we can't look at the Bible and say clearly, this is worship, this is not worship. And in a similar and more subtle way, most Christians understand that God does command us to give, but we have decided in our hearts that we are somehow qualified to decide how that command should be fulfilled. Ignoring the clear principles from the Word of God and deciding for ourselves, this is what obedience to giving looks like. When it comes to the resume for gospel partnership, we put our trust in faithful people whom we know well enough to be confident that they are going to faithfully work to proclaim the gospel and to build the church in the way that God has said it must be built. Faithfulness is more important than sentimentality. Faithfulness is more important than innovativeness. And faithfulness is more important than popularity. Since certainty of faithfulness comes from observation and relationship and not a well-worded support letter, then it makes total sense that the ones that we would be most comfortable partnering with are the ones that we know personally, ones that we know the best. Look, at, look again at verse 15. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. 
He says, in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership except you only. They know and love Paul, and it is based on a real relationship that they have had with him, what it says, from the beginning of the gospel. That phrase meaning that from the time the, first go- the gospel first came to them until now. Paul is re- reflecting on the relationship that he has had with them from the very moment that God started saving them through his ministry until now. They have known Paul for their entire existence as a probably only about 10 years or so, but it is a relationship that, be, that goes beyond mere knowledge of who he is and what he does to a close friendship with him. They know him, they trust him, they've seen his, they, they understand, they believe his intentions because it's been earned as they've been with him. They know and love Paul. They know the type of ministry that he is going to do. They are determined to help him, to partner with him no matter what. That phrase This is something that that you can't see in the English, but that phrase translated in the SV as in giving and receiving, it's translated in other uh, translations as the matter of giving and receiving, and that's probably a better translation. Because, and it's important to kind of see something in that phrase, because what almost all commentators recognize is that Paul is using a phrase that that is common in the culture here. This is, a, this is a common saying that he, the, the matter of giving and receiving is a common saying in the business world. Giving and receiving can be uh, translated as credits and debits, or debits and credits. It was an official phrase that was used in most official transactions, most contracts, and is similar to the phrase Paul uses in verse 18 where he says full payment. That was actually a phrase that was found on the bottom of most official receipts that we have in antiquity from that time. These are phrases that are used only in official business documents in antiquity. So at first glance, you might think that Paul's use of these phrases indicate that this isn't a very personal correspondence at all. That's probably why uh, the ESV translators, or that led to their decision to, 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 to make the translation like that. Because they want to avoid letting people think that this was a business matter. But, but, um, but they're, they're, you, this phrase is, these phrases are used only generally in official business documents. So at first glance, you think that Paul's use is, is like that, and it doesn't make sense in a personal correspondence of, between friends. But again, all of the commentators that I read also point out that since they are, in fact, such important business terms found almost exclusively in official contracts and documents, that whenever they are used in personal letters like this one, it actually signifies a close relationship that incorporates a type of playful joking that would only be seen in close friends. We don't really have a good example similar to what is going on here in our context, borrowing business terms for for joking, fun relationships. But it might be kind of like me saying to one of my kids, uh, if I see them do a really good job on their chores, oh, good job, you have earned your dinner tonight. Our, Our relationship and them getting dinner isn't actually contingent upon doing a good job in their chores the same way as earning your paycheck might be at work. It's just kind of a joking statement that is said in an unserious way to my children whom I know well enough that I know they won't feel like, oh no, if I don't do my chores tomorrow, I'm not, I'm going to starve. They're not going to think that. So Paul is indicating, by using this phrase, Paul is actually indicating a a close, uh, a relational closeness that others might not have with her or with him, but that he does recognize with the Philippians. And I bring all this up Because it is an important part of the text. It's something that Paul definitely wants to communicate, that he definitely uses on purpose there. But um, I bring it all up because we we don't really see that in the English translation. And it's important to see, to reinforce the point, that Paul really did have this close relationship with them. And because they know him, they know what he is doing, so they will be glad to support him, even if they are the only ones doing so, like he says. He says that they knew that no one else was supporting him, and they gave anyway. They wanted to be his partner anyway. They joyfully did this because they had the right understanding of what the final result 
of this partnership was supposed to be. So that brings us to our, to our third point, the right result of true gospel partnership. The right result of true gospel partnership. So when you understand the concept of partnership and the priority of the gospel, and therefore that obedient giving means partnering with one whom you know is going to do the work of the ministry the right way, then you don't need to be convinced by some sort of really good-sounding vision of a ministry. You don't need someone to prove their gospel business model to you. You don't need to see numbers and results and graphs. Here is the success of our ministry. You give towards faithful gospel ministry, even if it doesn't appear to be working according to the world's standards, because that is the work that God has promised that he will bless and that he will build his church on. Paul was committed to giving his life to the building of the church and to doing it the way that God ordained for it to be done. There's one goal, the growth of the church, and the goal is to be reached according to God's plan for doing this, not according to my plan. Faithful obedience to the Great Commission. That's God's plan. Faithful obedience to the Great Commission, no matter the cost. And if you find some other type of ministry that is not consistent with gospel faithfulness, that does not look like proclaiming the gospel clearly, but rather contextualizing to make it more relevant to more people, that doesn't look like the Great Commission, that doesn't look like building local churches that match God's description of what he wants his church to be, that doesn't emphasize qualified elders leading and pastoring churches who are equipping the saints for the work of the ministry. If you find a ministry that isn't doing these things and you're being told that it is working, and that's why you should give to it, then you can be confident that whatever it is that it might be working towards is not building the church. It's building something else. Because God has said that his church will be built through the means that he has promised to build it. It will be successful in how he makes it successful according to his definition of successful and through the means that he has promised to work through. So we partner with people who are faithful to God and not a system or a vision. Not according to perceived results. Just like we don't get to define what faithful worship looks like or what faithful giving looks like, we also don't get to define what successful ministry results look like. To that end, notice what he says in verse 16. He says, even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. What, is, what does he mean by that? Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help. Apparently, and, and apparently even on more than one occasion. And he says it like it should be seen as some kind of surprise that they would help him in Thessalonica. So, so turn back to Acts 17. Turn to Acts 17 and, and look there. If you recall, Paul's ministry to the Philippian church, where the church in Philippi begins, is in Acts 16. We're not sure how big that the church in Philippi was when he and Silas left, but there were definitely some people there. We see that at the end of the last verse of chapter 16. So they went out of the prison, visited Lydia, and when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. So they leave Philippi, and then the next place that we see a ministry in is Thessalonica. And so, so we're told in, in 17.1 that now when they passed through uh, Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. So right away you can tell that part of the reason why maybe they're giving, they're giving to, to Paul's work in Thessalonica might be surprising is that they're already starting to give to Paul's ministry so quickly and they've just left Philippi. So there's, that's, that's kind of surprising. Um, but also, look what the ministry looked like in Thessalonica. Look at uh, verses 2 through 9. And Paul went in to the, to the synagogue of the Jews as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them. So three Sabbath days, that means he does this three weeks. 
Three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out of the crowd. And then when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. And then look at verse 10. What happens after that? The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went to the Jewish synagogue. So what you see here, so, so another reason that it looks like it might have been amazing that the Philippians are sending money just based on the first glance is that it looks like Paul's ministry there might not have been very long. Like not, not much longer than three weeks. Uh, but Paul's description, we won't go there, but Paul's description of the type of work that they were doing in Thessalonica in 1 Thessalonians 2.9 and 2 Thessalonians 3.8 make it seem like he, he had to be, he almost certainly was there for longer than three weeks, but it probably wasn't a good long time. Possibly the main reason then that it is so surprising that they're able to help Paul and that they desire to help Paul in Thessalonica is because of how much duress he was under during the time while he was there. We are told that some of the Jews and a great many Greeks and not a few leading women joined them. And then that, that's where we see the foundation of the church in Thessalonica right there. But then we are told that the Jewish leaders form a mob and start going after them. And the people who are being converted like this Jason and some others, and they're being drug out of their homes and set before the authorities, they're being forced to pay money for their freedom, and eventually it's so bad that they send Paul and Silas out in the cover of night. The implication being that Paul and Silas can't continue to minister successfully there. So while they probably didn't leave the city after just three weeks, it does seem evident that it only took three weeks for the persecution against them to get really intense. And the reason then that the financial giving of the Philippians to this situation is so remarkable is because even though they are seeing people come to Christ early on, it doesn't look like a case where doors are opening and the city is being won to the gospel and the culture is transforming. That is, that is not what's happening. And we're told in verse 17 of, of the passage that we're reading in Philippians 4 that they gave multiple times while they're in Thessalonica. But by outward appearances, what it looks like is going on in Thessalonica, it doesn't look like a successful ministry. It looks like hiding. When I was on staff with the Navigators many years ago, part of my job was to write letters a few times a year to let people supporting me know what was going on so they could hopefully see that things are going well and that their investment was worth it. And, and it's not that we were supposed to, to lie in those letters, but there is just a general principle that most of the people that you're supporting, if they're going to continue to support you, they want to hear good news. They're more excited to be part of something that is really successful. So we, so we leaned into the good stories, the positive reactions, didn't talk so much about the people who laughed at us and who didn't like our gospel presentations or who would walk by our Bible studies mocking us or anything like that. And if numbers were small in your Bible study you were leading and people were dropping out, you would you'd give a more personal story about the one person who was really paying attention. And while I'm sure I had some supporters that would have wanted to hear, like, yeah, if you're being contended with, that is good. That means you're doing something right. For the most part, with all of the supporters that you have, they want to hear the good stories. And that's what they want to be a part of. But again, because the Philippians know Paul, and they know what faithful ministry looks like, even though what's going on in Thessalonica doesn't look like culture-transforming Christianity taking place, they know that God's blessing of His churches, it doesn't matter what the circumstances are, it doesn't matter what obstacles 
might be there. That's not the, that's not the measure of a successful church. They're eager to partner with Paul, even in this situation, because of Paul. So we see in this example of Thessalonica, the same truth that we also see in the Philippians' decision to give Paul money now. Because Paul is once again in a situation where you might be tempted to believe that successful ministry isn't going to take place in his, in, in his life right now. He's in prison. And this, once again, is pointing to the understanding of the necessity of gospel partnership. Their giving really is based on the faithful character they know to be present in Paul. The fact that they know and trust Paul to proclaim the gospel clearly, to build the church obediently. It has nothing to do with what things might look like based solely on the observation of his current circumstances. They're saying things like, is Paul going to be faithful? Yes. We are confident that he is okay then, even though it is hard for us to see how a church is going to form in Thessalonica with the authorities dragging Christians out of their homes, we're partnering with him. In a similar way, Paul is writing to commend them for the gift from them that he has just now received, that Epaphroditus has given them. And even though he is currently imprisoned, and it is tough to see how he's going to have much of an effect in this condition also, they ask themselves, do, do we know and trust Paul? Yes. Is he going to be faithful to proclaim the gospel? Yes. All right, then let's partner with him. This is what true partnership entails. You are inseparably linked together no matter what the circumstances might be. If they were actually present with him, as co-laborers with him, then they would be in jail also. So even now they understand that when they, they hitch their wagon, so to speak, to Paul, when they chose to partner with him through their giving in the circumstances surrounding his ministry, they don't matter. Is it still Paul? Is he still preaching the same gospel? Is he building the true church? Is he doing it the same way? Okay, then we are with him. This is what Paul recognizes in that very first verse in this section when he says it was kind of them to share his trouble. That is how he understands them. Even though they are not with him physically, their refusal to abandon support of him and the monetary gift that was the physical proof that their hearts are truly with him causes him to see them as truly sharing with him in his current trial. He really understands himself to be not suffering for the gospel all by himself. And it is because of the partnership that he knows he has with the Philippians. So, is this how we think when it comes to our giving? Do we have this principle in our mind? When it comes to how Christians should think of their giving, it is vital that we think in terms of partnership. That needs to be the filter. That needs to be the foundation that we see all giving through. We don't make decisions based purely on our emotions or something tugging at our heartstrings even though that's going to happen. We don't make decisions based on the desire to alleviate guilt and merely help us feel like we're obedient to the command to give. We're to be kind and generous and eager to give, but not at the expense of wisdom and discernment. We find true partners in gospel ministry, people who we know and trust, people who we are confident have a right understanding of the mission of the church and are committed to it, people who will preach the gospel with bold clarity, people who understand that the ultimate goal of all ministry is the building of the church, and, and people who have no interest in trying to accomplish this goal in any other way than the way in which God has mandated it to be done. We are eager to give all of our time, all of our resources to this end and to partner with those who are like-minded because this is the gospel that has saved us. And this is the church that we have been saved into. We have the strong desire to see it succeed. We have the strong desire to be part of that gospel's proclamation. Let's pray. Father God, thank you uh, so much for your word and even for, for just a section of scripture like this where we're able to see 
how we are to rightly respond to things, how we are to think just based on specific words that are used. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth that every word of it is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training, and righteousness. So, Father, in this principle, in this world, in this life that we are in, where it is easy, we have so many things and so many opportunities, so many people asking for help, so many places where we could distribute our money, our time, our resources. Help us to be good and wise stewards in our partnerships. Help us to be discerning in who we trust with our time, with our energy, and with our money. That for those in here who, who maybe just love giving and have such a difficult time saying no, I pray that these words would be an encouragement uh, to them as they think through these things. God, I pray that you would uh, just encourage this congregation overall as, a, as such a faithful con- congregation. God, I thank you for, for the partnership that we as elders feel taking place within this whole church, a church that, it, that we feel we, we are linked inseparably arm in arm with as we walk in the same direction together, pursuing gospel faithfulness and the growth of the church. And Lord, would we, would we just continue to excel still more in all of these things? And now as we turn our hearts, turn our time to the communion table, Lord, we pray that this message, this talk about gospel partnerships would, would remind us of the truth that we are united together through the blood of Jesus Christ. And it is through the blood of Jesus Christ that we have been reconciled to God and to one another. And that is why we have a common purpose, a common goal. Lord, we are so thankful for Jesus Christ. We are so thankful for the privilege to be your church and help us to live faithfully, to live faithfully out of a joy of the gospel in our lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray all these things. Amen.